Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. Could we turn, please, to Matthew's Gospel this morning at chapter 7? Just a few verses towards the end. Actually, uh, it's getting towards the conclusion of that our Lord's um, wonderful Sermon on the Mount. And uh, the passage I want us to look at this morning stems from um, some experiences that we've had in the recent past. It's a, a very um, strong warning for all of us and it um, points us to glorious reality and confidence that we can have concerning eternal life. The Lord Jesus says at verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And so our Lord goes on and develops um, the rest of the sermon from there. Now, whilst our Bibles bring to us glorious truth and the assurance of the most wonderful salvation that's been um, anticipated in some of the comments already this morning as we look forward to um, his presence in due course, we look forward to the glories of heaven. Um, And the Bible says that those of us who are in Christ have been brought into blessedness that is hard to comprehend. We're described as not only his children, but what about being heirs of God and joint heirs with the Lord Jesus Christ? Can we start to get our minds around that? The wonder of that, that we have been called into so great a salvation. But the the word of God and particularly the words of our Lord Jesus Christ here um, also give us warnings about a most fearful condemnation. Our salvation is great and glorious and delivers us from that which is hardly worth thinking about. It's hideous indeed. Um, Some people, even after hearing of the love of God towards them, can make a rational decision to repudiate the word of God. We love to give testimonies of those who have come to saving faith in the Lord Jesus and that's right, that's what we need to do to show how wonderfully the Lord works. But the truth of the matter is that a lot of people um, make the reverse decision. I had the tragic experience not so long ago of reasoning and, and discussing um, eternal issues with a dear one who was dying and um, having sought to put the claims of Christ um, and he knew, he knew them real well. The answer was, Graham, don't let this come between us. It was a rational a decision not to receive the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. It was done in a gentlemanly way. It was courteous. It wasn't um, 
um, unkind or anything on his part, but it was a definite repudiation of the gospel. Now that is a tragedy and that moved me deeply and still does to even think about it. But what our Lord Jesus Christ is addressing here is something that is, is more serious even if, that's, if there is possibility of anything more serious than that because he's identifying here for us people who are coming to him at the day of judgment confidently and looking for accolades and finding those awful words. Let me read those again. Matthew 7, 21, 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but those, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I'll declare, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Now the practice of lawlessness there is simply, well, we could describe it in modern day terminology as my decision to live my life the way that I determine. I will make the decisions about what is good for me, what I want to do, and I will live as if there is no law of God, as if there are no commandments, as if there is, in fact, as if there's no God at all. I'll just do my own thing. And I'll live my life to um, be independent of any outside influence at all. Well, if we want to get a fuller grasp of the significance of that phrase, it comes to us helpfully in, further on in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 22, where our Lord Jesus Christ is answering a question. At, at 20, chapter 22, verse 35, Then one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him and saying, Teacher, which is the great commandment of the law? See, the Lord Jesus has spoken about lawlessness back here in chapter 7. Well, what is the great commandment of the law? Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbour as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So those words of our Saviour clarify for us, don't they, what it means to practice lawlessness. It's namely to do things, including religious things, I might say, for reasons not relating to the love of God and not relating to the love of other people or both of the above. Just making our own judgments about how we're going to address issues by thought, in our thoughts, words and actions. So we've got in view, and this is where the warning for us lies this morning, people who our Lord identifies and who personally self-identify as being very religious people. They prophesied. These, these are people who have had a, a significant ministry. They prophesied in his name. They cast out demons in his name. These were spiritually minded people 
They did many unspecified wonders in his name. And the Lord Jesus is saying, depart from me, I never knew you. It would be bad enough if he said, um, just, um, I never knew you, but he goes on and says, depart from me. Now, we're speaking here of judgment that is, is final, is terrifying. It's not, it's not something where there's um, an appeals process or a grievance set of arrangements. This is where the Lord of glory is making a judgment at the judgment day and saying, depart from me. So the issue we're dealing with is a very significant and important matter. And it's clear from our words that even amongst those who profess the name of the Lord, who use the name of the Lord, but do so wrongly, there's this most deadly self-deception. Well, to whom our Lord, those who he's referring to here, seem to be living in an expectation that I've done a whole lot of good things, I'm presenting myself now. As a matter of fact, they're even proudly saying, didn't we do this, didn't we do that, didn't we do the other thing? They're impressive religious activities. People with a high degree of recognition in the religious world, but no standing in heaven, no currency in heavenly terms. Not lovers of our Lord in terms of that commandment that he mentioned, but not lovers of him, or the second one, lovers of other people. They certainly worked hard on reputation, um, but had laid up nothing by way of either identity or treasure for eternity. Now, we could say, well, is, has, has that got application in church life, in the reality of everyday life? Yes, it does indeed. Um, our Lord wouldn't have mentioned it in that great um, manifesto that he was giving um, in the Sermon on the Mount were it not significant. But we find that it's starting to, it emerges in the life of the church in the first century. The Apostle Paul in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 13 touches on a very, almost identical words. And this is what he says. Uh, 2 Corinthians 13 at verse 5. Examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or in the old King James Version, prove your own selves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless you are disqualified? But I trust that you will know that you are not disqualified. Now, that's a, that, please take notice of that closing phrase. The, the apostle wanted them to know with certainty that they were not amongst those who were disqualified. The Lord Jesus, in his dissertation, has just exhorted people to make sure they enter at the narrow gate. There's not a suggestion here of any desire to exclude people. The desire is to have people included, brought into the kingdom of God, brought into the knowledge of his so great salvation, but on the right basis, truthfully, honestly, realistically, actually. So I think we do well, brothers and sisters, um, to address this issue um, and see where we, where we stand before him, because it's not a rarity. The Lord Jesus uses the word many. There's a lot of people going to be caught up in this way. There's a lot of people 
going to face this. Our Lord used, chose his words, of course, perfectly. And he speaks of many. So it's a big issue, a massive issue, I'd say, to be singled out for identification by our Lord Jesus and then to be picked up by the Apostle Paul in his second letter to the church at Corinth. And he was writing to a church. He wasn't writing to one or two individuals. He was writing to the church of God, which is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in all Achaia. So it was um, a message that was important for in the, in the ministry of our Lord Jesus and the Holy Spirit has incorporated it into the epistles that we have. And it raises the question, of course, whether we've got to live in a heightened state of anxiety. Am I never going to know? Am I going to be in doubt to the day I stand before the Lord, whether I'm saved or not? And the answer, is, biblical answer to that is definitely no. We can be absolutely assured. We can know with certainty that we belong to Christ. We can look forward with eager anticipation to the reality of his presence. Our Lord expressed his desire for that in numbers of ways and one that comes to mind is John 8.31. Jesus said to those Jews who believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. If we're his disciples indeed, in fact, in reality, that's what we are looking for. And um, the apostle shared the desire for those professing faith in our Lord Jesus by those words that you might know that you are not disqualified. So it behoves us, brothers and sisters, to honestly, before God, look at the biblical indicators of being truly his. I know there are some in this, in this room this morning who ha have lived with a um, misunderstanding of what it meant to be born again, what to, it meant to belong to Christ. These are is a very important issue. You might recall that when our Lord Jesus Christ was, he had risen from the dead and he was ministering to the apostles um, who had gone fishing overnight on the Sea of Galilee, had caught nothing, and he, they came to shore and he ministered to them. And one of the issues, and the issue actually, that he took up immediately, directly with Peter and in the presence of the others, was the matter of personal relationship to Christ, to him, the Lord. And the question was, do you love me more than these? We're speaking of relationship with our living and loving Saviour. Have we got a heart commitment to him? Are we one in purpose with him? Are we in concert with his plan and purposes for our own lives and for others. We, can we say um, with the hymn writer, we love him, we love him. Or with the um, apostle, we love him because he first loved us. This is getting right to the basis of it. And so I thought we might just briefly this morning um, look at some of the, what we could call, um, tests, some of the indicators, some of the things that show to us um, the reality of what we profess. 
It's all right to have a head full of knowledge. It's one thing to have a head full of knowledge about the scriptures and that's important. The apostle exhorts us to study to show ourselves approved unto God. But mere knowledge of the truth is not going to bring us into relationship unless there's a commitment of heart and life to him. Going back to the, um, to the Sermon on the Mount, what's the very commencement of that sermon? Do you remember? It's there in um, chapter 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Poor in spirit is an expression that's linked with an overwhelming sense of personal sinfulness and unworthiness, being unworthy of the least of the blessings of our Heavenly Father. One scholar has used a very telling um, way of describing this. He pictures a person who is abjectly poor. He has nothing to sustain himself with. He's ashamed of the fact that he's unable to earn his living and he's got one hand covering his face to hide his identity and another held out in need for a benefactor to help him. He can't meet his own needs, however hard he tries. And that opening expression of our Lord Jesus Christ in the great Sermon on the Mount um, is, I think, the first indicator that we need to apply to ourselves. Is there that true heart attitude of penitence, could we call it? Um, the, the words he uses um, are, are probably more appropriate. The poor in spirit we don't have an exalted opinion of ourselves. We don't have an opinion that says, if I try harder, I'll be okay. It, it, we don't have an opinion that says, I've work, I'm working um, for the kingdom of God and there I'm, I'm earning my passage. There's none of that mentality. There's the knowledge that in me, that is in my flesh, there dwells no good thing. I have nothing that I can offer to my saviour. Augustus Toplady put it beautifully in that hymn that we sometimes sing, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress, helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, I to thy fountain fly, wash me saviour or I die. Have we if we know that before God under conviction of the Spirit of God that we are condemned sinners and rightly condemned sinners until we come to Christ. That's the mentality that, he's, that we uh, come to in that lovely um, expression. The Apostle John picks it up in 1 John 1 at verses 7 to 10. He says this, if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ his son cleanses us from all sin. The matter of dealing with sin, our sin, my sin, 
is by the precious blood of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me, for a sinner. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We, have we come to him on that basis? I know that I'm in, I, I deserve the judgments of God because I'm a, a sinner outside the covenants of promise, without hope. Well, and the, the apostle goes on. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. That's interesting, isn't it? Deceive ourselves. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. This is foundational to genuine newness of life in the Lord Jesus Christ, an acknowledgement that I am helpless before a holy and true God and I need salvation from a benefactor, from outside of myself. Well, we could put that down as one test and um, perhaps coming right at the beginning of the uh, Sermon on the Mount, it could be the most important test. Well, having identified that in verse 3 of chapter 5, a couple of verses later, when we get down to verse 6, our Saviour says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. We could make, this could be the second test that we might like to apply to ourselves. A hunger and thirst after righteousness. True believers are marked not only by an aversion to sin, but an attraction to righteousness. We had the lovely experience recently of speaking with a young lady who, um, in her mid-twenties, has come to know the Lord Jesus as her saviour. She'd been living a fairly wild life beforehand, but she has now come into a lovely personal relationship with Christ. And um, her girlfriends from former days put on a party for her recently and in attending it, which she did out of deference to her friends, she found um, there was no attraction in some of the activities that these um, dear worldly friends of hers um, were regarding as sort of entertainment. The appetite for that sort of thing had gone. There's a new appetite. There's a new hunger in the heart. There's a desire for what is righteous, what is good. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled, our Saviour says. And the desire is not um, like it is for the Pharisees. Of course the Pharisee wants to uh, portray righteousness, stands on the street corner, prays and so on, um, and is well known for um, seeking the best place at, at, at feasts and so on promote him, himself, to promote his own image and um, reputation. No, this is an inward hunger and thirst. This is something that is intrinsic to the newness of life that comes to a person who's called on the name of the Lord Jesus to be saved. 
Their desire is for righteousness that is internal. John MacArthur Jr. puts it this way, Those whose faith is genuine seek to abstain from wickedness, based that on 2 Timothy 2.19. Those whose, false, whose faith is false profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed, in Titus 1.16. Reflecting the words of our Lord Jesus Christ in that same chapter 7 of uh, Matthew, where we've already been this morning, where he speaks about you'll know people, the reality by their works. The, the life demonstrates the reality of the person. And that longing for true righteousness is... Um, the means of obtaining it, they're classically set out for us um, in chapter 7 chapter seven of um, Romans. The person being right about, writing bewails this in this way. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do, but the evil that I will not to do, that I practice. Now, um, we've all known something of that before we came to Christ, but he continues with those lovely words in verse 22. Um, he says, I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity and so on. And further down, Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? Who can deliver me from this impossible situation where I cannot even do what I want to do uh, that would make, might be pleasing to God? Who can deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. There's the person who's known deliverance where the life is changed, the, the very impetus from inwardly is changed because we are now indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God and his life, the work, life of our Saviour, is worked out for us. Well, that's, that could be a second test for us as to the reality of what we profess or what we are relying upon for when we stand before the living and true God that which is inward and real. Just might say, brothers and sisters, this is a test like the test that um, Rob reminded us of this morning as we came to the Lord's table. Let a man examine himself and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. We don't make judgments about the person next to us or someone else in the congregation in that respect, we are exhorted to ask ourselves. And the questions, the tests that the Apostle um, um, outlined or says we need to apply are tests that we need to do for ourselves. There is little point in um, you making judgments about my standing before the Lord or my inward feelings and relationship to the Lord. It's a very personal thing and it calls for honesty on our part. In this connection I was thinking of little Samuel 
<clears throat> remember when <clears throat> he was a boy and the Lord spoke to, and, uh, in one night and uh, he thought it was Eli calling him and he went to Eli and this happened a few times. And at the end, Eli said to him, if he calls again, say, speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth. The Lord did call again and you notice the words in scripture are that he said, speak, for thy servant heareth. He did not address the Lord as Lord because the scripture says as yet he didn't know the Lord. This was a person who was, as a little boy, was being honest before God and it behoves us to be utterly honest before the Lord and in the light of his word and under the ministry and constraint of the Holy Spirit. And that brings us to a, f- a third test that we could apply. There could be many more, but this third one we'll call submission to divine authority. This hard attitude of submission to divine authority is dramatically illustrated for us in two, B- two New Testament characters. First of all, the rich young ruler. And secondly, Saul of Tarsus at his conversion. That rich young ruler was certainly a religious man. He was certainly a man of reputation and standing. He was a man with a, um, a background of seeking to do the things that people expected him to do. And in fact, he was bold enough to say this to the Lord. I've done all these good things all my life. Well, the Saviour exposed the um, shallowness of all that with of this man's spiritual standing with one word. Verse 27, 28 of Matthew 19. He said to this young man, if you want to be perfect... Go sell what you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Now clearly the Lord doesn't put that same test to everybody. He doesn't ask all of us to sell everything and follow him. Um, He deals individually and differently with each one of us. But it's worth thinking about how would I have responded if it was me? who was asking, approaching the Lord, and he said to me, get rid of everything, sell all your possessions, dispose of any relationship, and come and follow me. It's a penetrating question, brothers and sisters. This lad was not, uh, this young man wasn't confronted with um, a bit of a challenge. This was a massive demand for him. He was a wealthy man of good reputation and he was being asked to give it all away to follow our Lord and Saviour. Well, contrasting with that, we have the story of a man who was truly born again when the Lord came after him and met him on the Damascus Road. We've got the record in Acts 9 at verses 3 to 6. This is Saul of Tarsus going up to Damascus to demolish the Christian community there. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? 
And he said, Who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said to him, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Two questions. Who are you, Lord? That was clarified immediately by the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Lord, our Saviour. And having established the person and standing of who was speaking to him, the next question flowed immediately, almost automatically, certainly realistically, from the um, from young Saul of Tarsus. Lord, what do you want me to do? An immediate sense of I am under the lordship of this person. I want to know his mind for me, for my life. I want my life to be in concert with his will. He's my Lord. He's my master. And the, the, the question flowed out easily from him. What do you want me to do? Important question in many aspects of our lives. Our young people, for instance, where the, the, um, the uh, norms of society are what do you feel you, you want to be when you grow up and all that sort of thing. The question for all of us at every phase and stage of our lives is, Lord, what do you want me to do? What is your will for my life? And um, it's one of the marks of a truly born-again question, a p- person who's, who has that inward desire to please him, to obey him, to serve him. And that's another point that needs to be realised. We want to serve him. Paul describes himself um, as a bond slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, a bond servant was not a person who was reluctantly under control. He was a person who wanted to serve that master. I I don't want to go out free. I want to be under this master. I want to live as he wants me to live and to live for his purposes and for his glory. Well, we could use that as another test, couldn't we? If that's the response of our hearts to want to be under the authority of heaven and want to be living according to what he wants, not what my ambitions discern as being a good idea, but what the Lord has for me. And the fourth test, and we won't be able to go beyond this, Um, we could say would be love for God and love for other people. The Apostle John picks this up beautifully um, in his first epistle. We could read through the whole epistle. I've just got a few phrases that I've picked out of chapters 2, 3 and 5. For this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. The one who says I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him, but whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has been perfected. Another quote, the one who keeps his commandments abides in him and he in him. And again, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. It's not a case of, oh, I've got to do this, I've got to do that. 
No. His commandments are not burdensome. They're the joy of our heart to do that which is pleasing and consistent with the known will of God. The Apostle Paul picks up that matter of love for Christ and, in fact, the matter of love anyway for others, for the Lord, uh, for his church. Um, in chapter 13 of um, the epistle, first epistle of the Corinthians, um, I, we'll go through a, a few of the things. He makes the point that loveless oratory, for example, is like a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. That prophecy, interestingly, prophecy is one of the things that these people mention to the Lord that they don't. Prophecy or knowledge or faith without love amount to nothing. And even martyrdom is a waste of time unless it's done in love for Christ. He points out that love is being, that he's speaking about there is kind. It doesn't envy. It does not parade itself or get puffed up. It does not behave rudely. It's not easily provoked and other beautiful characteristics. And the Apostle then ranks, um, he, he rates three great Christian um, characteristics, faith, hope and love. But he even goes as far as to say that the greatest of these is love. And that again, comes back to us as one of the criteria that we might look for. Has that love of God been shed abroad in our hearts? It is done so, but the Holy Spirit, when he takes up residence, his love is shed abroad in our hearts. Love for the Saviour, of course, who loved us and gave himself for us. Love for his people, and being with brothers and sisters is itself, is itself joy. But love too for those who are without Christ and without hope. And that's one of the marks of those who have come to know him. Well, we do need to realise that um, we can also have um, assurance as to our salvation. Those are tests that we might apply but you might remember that some, some months ago our dear old brother Nev Butel was testifying that as a little boy he came to the place of realising he wanted to go, he was well taught as a child, wanted to know the way to be saved and um, he called on the name of the Lord, he prayed uh, to the Lord to be his saviour, but he then had some doubts about it. Um, well, okay, I've, I've done that, I've asked the Lord Jesus Christ to be my saviour, how can I be sure that I belong to him and that I'm going to be in heaven? And his mother simply took him to um, his Bible and uh, asked him to read some of the verses. It might have been John 5 verse 24. All right, Neville, read John 5.24. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and who believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment but has passed from death to life. Um, that, does that assure you? John chapter 20.31. But these are written, this is a sort of summarising much of the book of John, the, Gospel of John. These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life 
in his name. You have it. It doesn't get taken from you. Romans 10.9, if, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If there's that, that work that has brought forth a testimony from your life, there's salvation. 1 John 5.13, these things I have written to you who believe, that is believe in, trust in and rely upon the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. We contrast that, brothers and sisters, with the knowledge that the devils have. The devils also believe and tremble. They do not have a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus. They have not put their trust in his finished work for the forgiveness of sins and and so on. Um, So we've got that lovely assurance that John gives there quite late in that lovely letter. These things I have written to you who believe in, that means trust in, rely upon the, the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Well, may the Lord put this issue, important issue, beyond question for us, that no one in our congregation should um, unwittingly, under self-deception, go forward with bold claims before the Lord without knowing him personally in the relationship that he's come to establish with us. Loving Father, we thank you indeed for the faithful words of our Lord and Saviour, of the dear Apostle too. We thank you for the scriptures that warn us against that which is external and superficial and unreal. And we thank you together for that which is substantive and real and lasting and eternal and blessed. We praise you for the Saviour who came to seek and to save those who were lost. And this morning, Lord, we bow the knee of our hearts and thank you that we are able to know with assurance that we are yours and yours forever and that none can pluck us out of your hands. We praise you in his peerless name. Amen.